Blog Talk Radio. era, perhaps the last planetary era that will include human history. We are presently on a suicide run, and only what we do in the next 10 years, collectively, as a species, might change that. Might change that. Last year, we saw the preview. This year, the main event has begun, with fires and floods and storms. All of us here in the USA have seen and smelled the smoke from thousands of miles away. An outside observer from another planet might say they haven't got a hope in hell of surviving what they've done, what they've allowed to happen. Jonathan Porritt, a lifetime environmentalist, has written a book that just came out a few months ago, and he's named it Hope in Hell. It was hard for him, but he thinks we may have one left, one hope in hell. His subtitle is How We Can Confront the Climate Crisis and Save the Earth. Of course, the Earth doesn't really need saving. It's going to go on in whatever form we make into it. What needs saving is us. It's really coming down to that. Humankind is actually committing suicide. We're taking a lot of other species with us, but the very future survival of humanity itself has come into serious question. If we don't do something and start right now. The changes we are causing will make this planet uninhabitable for us. Uninhabitable. Jonathan, I sincerely appreciate your time today and your tremendous efforts in writing this book. You say in your book that 2021 will be the decisive year, and you put a lot of hope into Biden and Harris for doing something. What do you think so far? 2021 is ticking. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, yep, you're absolutely right. We're um, pretty much through 2021, and in many respects, some of the promise that I was looking forward to has not been delivered. Let's be honest about that. But some good things are really happening. So let's deal with the stuff that isn't good to start with. There were promises from world leaders all around the planet at the start of the year that some of the investments they made in helping to sort out the post-COVID-19 economic woe would be directed into the low-carbon economy, into green solutions. That hasn't really happened. The latest analysis shows that actually about 80% of that flow of money, the billions and billions of dollars, 80% has gone to the old world companies and technologies of yesterday and only 20% into the, the new world. So that's been a a bit of a blow. Um, in terms of the U.S. in particular, I do think that uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have kept the whole notion of the Green Deal just about taking over. The infrastructure bill that is currently tortuously making its way through Congress is a big deal, and if that can be won um, at the last call, then that'll be a really important step forward. There's no question about that. 
Um, and I'm impressed at the way in which John Kerry in particular, your president's um, ambassador on climate issues, has been doing a fantastic job actually trying to get people to lift their sights for this big conference at the end of the year. So as ever, it's a, it's a mixed picture. Well, one thing you've already done for me is help me upgrade my terminology. In the 90s, it was global warming. Then it became climate change. Only in the last couple of years have we upped it to climate crisis. But going forward, I will now use your very appropriate term for it, climate emergency. We've most definitely reached the emergency stage, eh? Yeah, and I think, you know, you can overdo this language stuff, but it actually does matter. It's the way in which people connect with ideas, and it's often the means by which they familiarize themselves with a general approach to something. And so to move people into the state of mind that this is an emergency which requires an emergency response rather than a crisis to which the response can be played out over many, many years is important. And I think we've learned that here in particular um, in Europe where most of our um, European member countries now have actually committed to some kind of emergency declaration of one kind or another, as have many, many countries around the world, as you probably know about. There are a lot of countries now that have declared a climate emergency, um, probably a bit too early in our conversation to get too deep into the cynicism about politics, but I'm sorry to say it's, it's been a little bit easier for the politicians to declare an emergency than to develop an action plan to deal with that emergency. But, yeah. You know, You've got to get. You've got to get there. You've got to get to, to the first base in order to to make it all the way around the park. <laughs> well, as we speak, we're four thousand miles apart. I'm I'm in the central U.S. and you are in England. Are Are you still Chancellor at Keele University? I'm still Chancellor of a university here in the U.K. called Keele, indeed, um, which I've done for nearly ten years now, and I've really loved it. Um, and I hope you'll forgive me for a moment, Van, if I show off a little bit. Not, not that this has got anything to do with me, because the Chancellor of the University um, over here in the UK is pretty much an honorary post, not quite, and I've been able to, to get stuck in. But this is not this, the achievement that I'm about to tell you about has nothing to do with me, but earlier in the year, Keele University was actually... Um, awarded the most prestigious award of the International Sustainability Institute of, across the world for higher education. Um, and as you can imagine for my colleagues, wow, that was, a, that was a proud moment because they've been dedicated to getting their university to embrace all of this story about the climate emergency and biodiversity and thinking carefully about student well-being and so on. Um, and for it to be acknowledged in that way just has been a, a wonderful, wonderful thing for them, wonderful thing. And I'm basking in their, in their earned glory, okay, so um, it's nice to have these things happen. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't have a hand in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, not as much as you might imagine, although there is, a, I did, when I became Chancellor of the University, I said, I hope it'll be all right to have an activist Chancellor rather than a Chancellor that just does the award ceremonies and the end-of-year glad-handing and all the rest of it. And they seem to have been comfortable with that, but, uh, but there we go. <laughs> well, 
Well, I've done uh, I've done a dozen of these interviews now. Began back in March with the indomitable Paul Ehrlich, but you're the first author to whom I've spoken who has been in the fight for your entire life. You chaired the initial ecology party in England, which is now the Green Party. You've been director of Friends of the Earth. You're president of Population Matters. You're a co-founder of Forum for the Future. You've written eight or nine books all about the environment. You've been awarded a CBE by the British Empire for your environmental work. Sir, I am only an egg. Thank you again for your time here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I actually look on it. To be honest, it, it, it does. It does sometimes amaze me that it's nearly 50 years um, that I've been involved because I started reading reading about all this stuff really seriously back in the early 70s. But uh, it's been. It was a privilege for me to come across this early in my life, because I think once you've kind of seen how differently we need to be living our lives now and it's kind of sunk in at that level then you can make sense of that and and I've been able to process that and work with it and change what I do but the original understanding about the need for profound transformation came to me early on and frankly that was that was just a stroke of luck I happened to end up reading a book um, that I, I found by chance called Blueprint for Survival, published by the Ecologist magazine. And that book kind of opened my eyes to how crazy our model of progress was, even back in the early 1970s. Just, just madness already breaking out all around us. And I don't know, I've never had any reason to go back on that set of early insights. It's kind of served me well as a foundation from that point on. Well, you say that it's not too late but it soon will be. One of your main points that you begin and end with is that without mass civil disobedience, we cannot avoid the threat of runaway climate change. Yeah, and a lot of people don't like that idea. They're a bit unnerved by the notion of civil disobedience, of people choosing to break the law. It's time to be unnerved. Yeah, to pursue a cause, and, and, and I, I understand why people are so concerned about that. But the difficulty is that the outlaws today are not the climate campaigners. The outlaws today are, are politicians. They are living outside of the laws of the natural world. They are in breach of those laws day after day, without any apparent readiness to accept that 50 years of living outside of those laws has precipitated now an existential threat to the future of humankind. So the real outlaws for me aren't the climate campaigners. They're politicians, often brilliantly served by their scientists. I mean, the quality of the scientific advice is not the issue. I read the the scientific advice that goes to these politicians. I know that this is being spelled out in terms that are totally clear and incontrovertible these days. So it's not that there's anything lacking about the science. What is lacking is their ability to free themselves of some of the encumbrances of the past and and to come up with a different way of creating wealth for 
the whole of humankind. So for me, civil disobedience is the only way of narrowing the gap between the science and as the science stands today, which is so clear, and the political response, which is so inadequate. And if someone and, could and, tell me... Sorry, Van, carry on. Yeah. I was just going to say, and bought and paid for. And bought and paid for, which makes it even worse, absolutely, because... You know, the level of corruption in this respect is pretty startling now um, in country after country. And those old incumbent sectors and industries and companies, they know how to keep politicians on side. And sorry, I don't want to get too quickly into the dire state of democracy in the USA. But of course, this what I call official corruption, because it's completely legal but it is nonetheless a total corruption of your democratic system. It has reached such a point now that you have to question whether or not there is a a sufficiently large core of decision makers left in Congress who can act with anything like the necessary um, objectivity and concern for um, their constituencies and for people as a whole. So, yeah, they're captured, good and proper they're captured by the dollars that keep flowing their way. Well, you, you, uh, I'm, I've always been blamed for uh, oversimplifying things, and but I like your very simple solutions. You have a threefold solution to all of this. Number one, stop CO2. Number two, remove CO2. And number three is the political disruption, the civil disobedience, which will be required to get the attention of the decision makers. Yeah, I like to keep things simple because it's a complex story that confronts us, that people don't respond to complexity. And those three things, so just stop putting the greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere in the first place, um, which is sometimes called decarbonization. And then, and I wish this wasn't the case then, but then we're going to have to focus on getting quite a lot of those greenhouse gases back down out of the atmosphere. So that's remove the the CO2, some of the CO2 um, from the atmosphere, which is the thing that's causing the continued heating, of course. And then thirdly, we have to address the politics, which will make both of those two things, the decarbonization and what I sometimes call the recarbonization, bringing the CO2 back into our terrestrial uh, earth-based and marine systems, all of which need that CO2 for their own healing purposes. So it's, um, these, those are the three big, big picture challenges. You're right. And the good thing is, well, let's leave the third one for now, but the good thing is there are many, many reasons to be hopeful for both the first two of those, for, for stopping the emissions of the greenhouse gases, and then for attending to the the removal of those the gases we've built up over the last uh, more than 50 years now. Um, there's tons of stuff going on there, and, and actually a lot of it is, is hugely encouraging. Well, I know I you know I can tell by by your by your writing and some of the things that you say that that although you are a proponent of hope. Uh, you you do feel that we are on uh, the razor's edge. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting. You pointed out that that both optimists and pessimists are not good things because being one or the other 
excuses one from acting. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess this is a, this is a part of my life where I've kind of doubled down on the irritation, anger I feel about um, superficial responses to the situation that we're in at the moment. Um, and the optimists get right up my nose because many optimists are just fixated with the technology. They, they look at some of the amazing things that we're capable of doing now and they you know, quite rightly can celebrate opportunities to escape from the world of fossil fuels in a much shorter period of time than most people understand, by the way. But, um, and they look to that technology story as a way of rescuing humankind from its current uh, quandary. And that they tend to sit back on that basis and think that the, the wonderful, the power of technology will get it all sorted so we can just and carry on with our be life okay. as before. Yeah. It's going to be okay. So yeah. trust me, it's going to be fine. And then the pessimists, of course, are, have become equally problematic for me because they do drive people into a state very often of disempowerment where people feel less inclined to get involved in actions and to do stuff than they might otherwise be inclined to do. And that doesn't help. What we really want are people who are pretty savvy about the state of the world um, are prepared to get stuck in and do the things that need to be done as individuals and as citizens, political citizens with votes and all the rest of it. And to do that with full recognition of the crisis we're in the middle of, but not to let that that recognition spill over into despair or doom and gloom, because that doesn't honestly help anybody. It doesn't help anybody. But Van, having said that, you know, eventually we're all of us constrained by the science. If we don't start doing things much, much more quickly and purposefully than we're doing now, there will come a point where that dreaded phrase, it's too late, is the only way of describing the state of humankind at that time. There will come a point. I have no idea when it is. You can't predict that because of complexities around feedback loops and tipping points and natural systems and so on. But if we don't get a, a move on, then, yeah, it will, it will then, I believe, um, become too late. And it's not just about the environment only. You point out social justice and climate justice are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, this has been a big thing for me, Van, for a long time. And I've worried away about how, sometimes if I'm being honest, green campaigners, environmentalists, come across as pretty much a privileged elite in society who've got things well enough sorted out that they can devote their lives to protecting the natural world and I don't want to be in any way disparaging of the work that they do because it's so important but sometimes they seem to be entirely detached from the lives that the majority of human beings actually lead on this planet and I don't just mean in the, the world's poorer countries in developing and emerging countries I mean in our countries in some of the richest countries on the planet in the USA and the UK in particular where continuing levels of injustice poverty racial inequality and so on are still so pronounced so much the day-to-day -day reality of millions of people that you cannot you cannot separate that story about social injustice from the story about climate change you can't zone these things off 
so that one group of people deals with one set of challenges and issues and another set of people deal with the other one. It's just not like that. And for me, that's always been a bit of a worry at the back of my mind that the environment movement has been detached from a lot of that social reality for people today and has often spoken about environmental concerns in ways that seem to ignore what constitutes people's day-to-day reality. And you point out that it's that that, 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 that we've we've gotten to a point where where the, the issue it's too important to be left to environmentalists alone. Climate change is a civilization issue. Uh, we we need a radical transformation of today's economy. We got to get away from this growth obsessed economy. Yeah, yeah, that's critical. Um, and I tried to explain in the book, and I you know, having been. I suppose around for so long, I can see how this happened, that as soon as climate change got characterized as, quotes, an environmental problem, quotes, then an awful lot of people who just got used to discounting the importance of environmental issues, a lot of them felt, okay, so climate's an environmental issue. Well, we know about them. We'll get around to deal with it in due course. But right now, we've got much bigger things to worry about to do with the economy, national security, pandemics, whatever else it might be. And we don't have to we don't have to worry about this. And of course, that mischaracterization has cost us all dear because climate change isn't like that. Of of course, it's a it arises from a malfunctioning of natural systems caused by our um, contribution to those natural systems through the emission of greenhouse gases. Of course, it's, it's, a, it's an environmental malfunction, if you like, but it's basically an economic issue. And if you go on ignoring the economic issue for long enough, it becomes a civilizational issue because then our civilizations are at risk. And that, for me, that was a, an insight really early on, actually, um, in my work as a campaigner, when the whole story about economic, permanent economic growth on a finite planet, you probably recall, Van, the, the debate about limits to growth back in the early 1970s, those debates have rumbled on for 50 years. We still haven't made much progress. We're still nope. as absolutely obsessed with economic growth as we were back then. Yep. Unbelievably. Yeah, uh, I, I'd, I'd like for you to, to uh, explain uh, to us your your feelings overall about the Paris Agreement, which, when it happened, everybody just thought, "Oh, this this is really this is really terrific." Uh, but but you 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 said something about when you fully understood it. I, I think you said I think you said it. Uh, your heart shriveled, or something. You you said it. It's both yeah. an incredible breakthrough and a death sentence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, which is a complicated story, isn't it? Um, it was a breakthrough because negotiations in the preceding conferences in the five years before Paris had been completely stuck. No progress had been made, really, since the big conference in Copenhagen in 2009. And by virtue of brilliant diplomacy from people like Christiana Figueres and others, 2015, the Paris conference was different. Countries did step up. They did make commitments to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. And from that perspective, everybody celebrated. And we needed some light 
in the doom then of the apparent um, complete inaction on climate. But then, of course, you had to crunch the numbers because the way the Paris Agreement came about was that each country offered up its own target, its own commitment. It wasn't legally binding. There was nothing going on there which would force a minimum set of greenhouse gas emission reductions. It was all voluntary. And when people crunched the numbers, they came to the conclusion, well, okay, this is progress, but if countries can't do better than what they've committed to at Paris, then the average temperature increase by the end of the century will exceed three degrees C. And diving a bit into the science of that, as you know, Van, uh, the scientists have told us pretty clearly that the maximum average temperature increase we can tolerate by the end of the century if we still want to maintain a stable climate, that the maximum is 1.5 degrees C. And of course, we've already banked a lot of that increase since the start of the Industrial Revolution. In fact, around 1.1 out of that 1.5 degrees C because of all the economic activities since then. So we're still going. Yeah, we're still going. Still going up every year, every year. So that, that was... That was the weird feeling at the end of Paris, a breakthrough. But guess what? We were still intent on cooking the planet to the point where life would become all but impossible for the vast majority of human beings. Now, uh, it's complicated, Van, but to be fair to the people who did all that hard work in Paris, they, they did include a useful mechanism. They call it the ratchet mechanism. And the ratchet mechanism was that as the science changed, then countries would need to upgrade their targets and would need to commit to accelerated reduction programs. And that's what we're focused on at the moment is, are these countries now going to ratchet up their targets for reducing emissions of greenhouse gases to the point where we can still hope to stay below 1.5 degrees C? And that's what the debate is all about right now. I have to say there are fewer and fewer scientists who believe it's possible now to stay below that 1.5 degrees C by the end of the century, but are still very focused on not letting this thing run away with us. Because even though 2 degrees C is a hell of a lot worse than 1.5 degrees C, 2 degrees is a lot better than 2.53 or whatever else it might be. Or even 2.1. Even yeah. 2.1, I mean, frankly, every single shading of every of every degree increase is going to be absolutely, absolutely critical. And you, you opened our conversation today, Van, by talking about what we're already witnessing in terms of the perturbation of natural climate systems, the increase in both intensity and frequency of climate disasters is staggering to look at yeah. I mean, it's just staggering it you know even people have been on the front line of this for a long time are not quite in disbelief but they're saying we did not think things were going to be moving this fast we didn't factor in that every temperature extreme or storm intensity extreme or flood extreme we did not think that these these dreadful records would 
turn out to be worse and worse and worse. And, and you've encountered that in your conversations, man. You know what it, it feels like for a lot of climate scientists today. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 20, 2021 uh, has become a, an incredibly consequential year. It, it's, it, it, it's amazing how quickly things have changed and, and are changing. In, in, your, in your book, though, you, you did point out several good things. The, I mean, there, are, there are good things <laughs> happening you know, yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the solar uh, is, is growing much more quickly than anyone ever thought it could. So is, so is wind power. Uh, the electric vehicles uh, are, are, are coming on strong. A lot of, there's a lot of actual, a lot of the corporations out there uh, uh, have, have begun doing things the right way. Uh, uh, even in Europe, uh, you're, you're, you're way ahead of the, the, the U.S. Europe is uh, as far as renewables. They're talking about uh, uh, 75% of uh, renewable generation by, by 2035. And, and you point out that the, that the world right now, the global electric generation is, is up to 23%. And so we're we're it's if we survive this, it's going to be changing from the age of fossil fuels to the age of renewals, renewables. Yeah, yeah, and that is that revolution is already well underway. In fact, it's more than underway. It is now unstoppable. And I do think there are still some people who don't understand that. It, it means that we are looking at the end of the era. Of fossil fuels within the next 10, 15, maximum 20 years. And that's an astonishing oh. thing. It is astonishing. And the reasons for that are economic. So this is not, this is not some top-down political takeover of the energy system. The truth of it is that the reduction in costs and the increase in efficiency, particularly of solar and wind, as you said, but other technologies as well, has been so astonishing to people, I mean, so astonishing, that most fossil fuels now can't actually compete in the open market. And 10 years ago, you couldn't really have said that. We, we kind of knew that governments would have to make it possible for renewables to see off the fossil fuels, as it were. But right now, all over Europe, we've got completely subsidy-free, so not a a dime of government money going into these new developments, totally subsidy-free renewable electricity schemes coming forward at incredibly low prices. So costs are not increasing for consumers. They had to increase to start with, fair point, and, you know, that's the nature of a transition of this kind. But right now, consumers are beginning to see a tremendous benefit from moving to the... Um, the, the renewable electricity system in the poor world as well as the rich world. And that's something I stress in the book is that really and truly this, the solar and wind revolution is not just a rich world revolution. It's a revolution for every single country in the world that will benefit from these technologies. There's been a lot of people uh, saying that uh, nuclear power would, uh, would suffice as a good stopgap while we're, 
getting to the total renewable side of things uh uh but uh you you say no 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 to nuclear <laughs> i do oh gordon bennett i mean honestly i've lived with the nuclear fantasists all my life and um in fact i tell this anecdote occasionally one of the first things i did when i became director of a environmental organization called friends of the earth in order to understand whether Friends of the Earth's opposition to nuclear power was justified or not, I went to visit one of the most prestigious nuclear research institutes in the UK, a place called Color, and I was shown around and, you know, met these amazing scientists who genuinely believe, don't get me wrong, these guys are still completely con- con- committed to this being a, a technology to rescue humankind from fossil fuels. But I was shown around and told at that time, this is 1984, that nuclear fusion in particular would be the salvation of the human race because we would be able to generate enough power at a low enough cost to provide for everybody's needs and more. Well, suffice it to say that nuclear fusion is still about 40 years off in the future. And although now we've got a wave of new enthusiasm for different nuclear technologies, people are very overexcited today about small modular reactors and advanced reactors and everything else. None none of these designs have got off the page yet because the costs associated with bringing new nuclear forward are just just eye-watering. So I don't believe it'll ever happen, to be honest, Van. I think despite all the enthusiasm of people like Bill Gates and others who are absolutely wedded to their nuclear fantasies. Uh, These people can bang on about it as much as they like, but in truth, consumers are saying now, you know what, this nuclear stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work even in its own terms, in in terms of giving us uh, reliable, low-cost electricity. And it sure doesn't work from the point of view of nuclear waste, because although the industry hates to talk about it, the legacy of nuclear power is generation of responsibility having to look after nuclear waste at a huge public cost. So, That's, I don't know. I, 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 I've been involved in this debate for a long time, but in a way I'm a little bit more relaxed about it these days because, frankly, it's a failing industry. It's a failing set of technologies. And meanwhile, everything else is being sorted out in that regard by other better ideas and technologies. Yeah, yeah, and and even uh, yeah. Well, you you also uh, you also take aim at the IT giants, and uh, I think you, you you say they need to be uh, broken up and regulated to within an inch of their lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not alone in that ambition, am I, Vaughn? Uh, no. Um, I follow the. Uh, the um, interests of Elizabeth Warren, for instance, and many other campaigners in the USA who are intent on doing something to constrain the power of these massive uh, companies today. And I do use the analogy that government had to break up the old oil companies uh, in the 20th century, and, and if they hadn't done that, then the situation would have been almost impossible for people to live with. And I'm absolutely convinced that eventually regulators, scientists, are going, um, uh, politicians are going to have to break up the big incumbent tech companies today. And personally, I hate the degree of intrusion in our lives, the degree of control, the 
everything that goes on regarding our data and the utterly insidious presence they play in the lives of so many people, particularly young people. And of course, for me, most concerningly of all, the way in which those platforms are used by those who seek to destroy democracy to further undermine electoral and democratic processes. And America's had more than its fair share of those um, abusive processes um, trying to undermine democracy um, in ways that are devastating to the kind of health of health of the polity of, of the USA. I, I, you know, on those grounds alone, I'd want to see politicians take much more active steps to to get them to get them in line to control them more effectively. Let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts of of what's happening in the world. Uh, in your book, you talk about Greenland. And that was before it rained uh, in Greenland. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you point out that if Antarctica were to fully melt, that that means 197 feet of sea level. And Antarctica is, with every new study, it's, it's, it's melting faster and faster. Glaciers comprise 70% of all the fresh water on the planet, and they are, they are disappearing as, as we speak. The, the, the flow of major rivers from, uh, from uh, the Himalaya uh, glaciers, the Ganges, the, the Mekong, the Yellow River, uh, billions of people uh, rely upon that water, and, and it's, it's soon to be gone. And, and, and then there's, the, the scientists can't even quite figure out whether or not uh, what, what the sea levels are going to do. They're talking about a 10-foot sea level rise by 2100. Some now are saying, hey, maybe by 2050. This, this is just, this is all crazy. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to escape this this kind of flow of data into our minds, into our hearts, when you think about the implications of that. And sea level rise is, is, is the one thing that I think has genuinely shifted scientists into a state of near panic. Because it comes from all of these different sources, as we know, but particularly the Greenland ice sheet, um, and Antarctica and the glaciers um, and so on. But it also comes, of course, from thermal expansion in the oceans as average temperatures increase the water and the temperature increases in the oceans, the water expands. So we've got a, a double whammy going on there, if you like. And the last um, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, and I just remind people at this point in a conversation, Van, that this body, the Intergovernmental Panel, was set up by governments in 1988, is the official advisory body for governments. And governments have to sign off on its reports. So when the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel came out a month or so ago, six weeks or so ago, it was signed off by every country in the world, including yours and mine, but also countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, countries that are not known to have any particularly progressive positions on climate change. So this is a government body giving official scientific advice. And in that report, and I think you were alluding to that in your comments there, but uh, they indicated that now we, we, we should almost 
we can almost guarantee a one meter sea level rise by the end of the century. Sorry, I should be doing that in foot, not meters. Um, so whatever, three foot, slightly more than that. And the, the likelihood is now that we're, we're going to see accelerated melting, which will take us much closer to seven or eight feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. Uh, probably not by 2050, if you want to if you want to take a little bit of comfort from what the science tells us now. But nonetheless, even that level of sea level rise by the end of this century is staggering to try and wrap our minds around. Um, I used to do a lot of work, Van, I don't know because of COVID, but I used to do a lot of work in Southeast Asia, in particular in Malaysia and Indonesia. And you probably know that the capital city of Indonesia, Jakarta, has... Yeah. been sinking for a long time now because of the extraction of water and all sorts of other reasons, geological yeah. reasons. And the Indonesian government is now so worried about this. They actually said they're going to have to move the, the capital city of Indonesia from, that, from Jakarta and relocate the entire capital city in another part of the Indonesian um, archipelago in, in Kalimantan. And that's one great big global city which now is almost certainly going to witness at least 10 feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. We're talking tens of millions of people. I don't know. I mean, we, we're not really ready for this yet, and we've got to get ready for it because some of this stuff can't be undone now. I mean, the most chilling word, sorry, Van, I'm banging on about this, but the report was pretty astonishing. The most chilling word in that whole report was irreversible. Irreversible. Yeah. Yeah. And what it said was that in certain instances, not all climate things, because a lot of climate things can be reversed, thank God. Um, and we've done that in the past. We reversed the damage done to the ozone layer. We reversed damage done through a phenomenon known as acid rain. We can reverse damage. But in the, in the report, it said that with regard both to acidification of the oceans, so the buildup of carbonic acid in the oceans, and with regard to sea level rise, some of that stuff now is irreversibly baked in. We can't undo that now. And it went on to say irreversible with hundreds or even within hundreds or even thousands of years, end quote. Irreversible within hundreds or even thousands of years, end quote. Now, that, you know, for me, that's a pretty staggering thing. And I'm, uh, we're both more or less the same age, man. I read that and I'm horrified. And then I think, imagine you were an 18-year-old and you read that with every expectation of being alive at the end of this century. No reason why people won't be, health is improving all the time. Tons of people who are 18 years old today will still be alive in 2100. And you listen to that and you think, my God. And that's not the end of it. Just because that's 2100, sea levels might continue to increase after 2100, as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Sorry. I've got, I've got, well, I've just, I've just got such a copious list of notes here that, that there's, there's no way, you know, that we can, we can deal with, with everything that is, that is in your book. And I, I wish we had time to do so, but there were a couple of things that, that, that you pointed out that, that I, I haven't really 
focused on or understood and uh, adequately and and one of them is farming and yes. and how and how huge uh, a factor in all of this is food production and and farming which is a, a massive part of the problem yeah and i think i i don't blame politicians for this because the focus has been on energy and transport as you said um particularly what to do about the internal combustion engine and energy systems and so on but what that has meant is that their focus has not been on farming and land use as a whole and as we get better and better at what i call the decarbonization story so um eventually eliminating the emission of these greenhouse gases so the importance of farming and land use has featured more and more and in the big climate conference in in our city in Scotland Glasgow at the end of the year climate uh, climate and land use is a much bigger theme than it's been before and of course and that's because farming is a very carbon intensive activity if you think about the huge intensive monocrop systems around the world whether you're talking about corn in your country soy in south america rice across much of southeast asia um all of these crops wheat distributed around the world these are very intensive crops that take a lot of energy a lot of um fuel in terms of the commoditized production systems a lot of chemicals a lot of fertilizers So you look at the carbon footprint of this and that's before you start talking about meat production systems which of course are equally very carbon intensive now um because of the emissions from the cows and the livestock themselves and this is probably now the most urgent thing for us to begin to address in the same way as we've addressed decarbonizing our energy system and you pretty much do that you 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 pretty much uh, predict that there is a big food disruption coming uh, in relation to meat yeah no i i'm i'm excited about this one i'm not sure everybody will be van um particularly in the usa but nonetheless uh, meat consumption in your country by the way has now plateaued there is a slight reduction in per capita meat consumption every year which is encouraging but it's nothing like enough and one of the things we absolutely know now is we have to reduce levels of meat consumption per capita meat consumption we have to move away from these hugely energy intensive and cruel systems of intensive livestock rearing in feedlot systems in factory farms the whole lot it's all, that's all going to have to change but one of the technologies that i believe will play a huge part in that transition is what some refer to as clean meat or lab grown meat or whatever there are tons of different ways of describing it but basically it means you use the tissues you take the cells of a creature and then you culture those cells you grow them on in a bioreactor you they're getting smarter and smarter about ways in which you can do this both with a reduced cost and more efficiently and you end up with the equivalent molecular equivalent of the dead flesh of the billions of animals that we kill every year and although it's still relatively early days to say the least because not many people have eaten uh, lab grown meat as yet from a bioreactor 
if you just follow the money, which is often an interesting way of looking at what the future holds for us, you follow the money, there are tens of billions of pounds, sort of, of dollars now, being lined up for new investment in artificial meat, uh, lab-grown meat. And that's because we know that people aren't going to give up on meat-eating completely. People have always enjoyed meat in their diets. It's, it's always been part of the ways in which people recognize getting richer. If you look at China and Southeast Asia, the fact they're all getting richer means they're eating more meat. So we're not going to stop meat eating, but we have to be able to find ways of getting that meat that we need in a different way. And I'm very excited by the lab-grown story, um, but I know a lot of people will be thinking, those listeners now will be going, ugh, yuck, ugh, grown in a bioreactor, grown in a laboratory, what's this got to do with real people eating real meat, grown properly, you know, out there on the plains, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, I, can give you, I can give you some firsthand on that because uh, I've, I've been a meat eater my entire life, uh, but just yesterday I had an Impossible Burger and frankly, huh? I can't tell. I can't tell the difference. I, I I liked it just fine. It tastes just like the you know the the regular thing. But yep, yep. let's 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 turn to the number one enemy of the earth, and the enemy of of the people on the earth. And I believe that's the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I've written more than one editorial on my website uh, calling them enemies of the earth. Uh, yep. uh, Bill, Bill McKibben, uh, you, you used a quote of his that, that, that said they have, they have been telling the most consequential lie in the history of humankind. They have spent billions of dollars uh, trying to stop all of this progress uh and and uh and and yet you 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 another prediction that you've made is that somewhere soon in the next maybe decade or so there is going to be a complete bursting of the carbon bubble yeah yeah i think it's inevitable now actually um the numbers of people who understand firstly what's happening in terms of the changing climate and secondly understand the role of the fossil fuel in industries in worsening that problem i think a lot of investors are going to say you know what this this isn't going to work any longer and um, for an investor when i say it isn't going to work what i mean is that it's not going to generate the returns on their capital of the kind that they seek and that's a hugely powerful part of the global economy as we know if investors came to the conclusion that pumping more billions of dollars into new oil and gas assets all around the world had no chance or little chance of providing that revenue flow over the next 20, 30 years, then they won't go there. And frankly, Van, we can see this already when it comes to the coal industry. I mean, the coal industry in, in rich world countries is pretty much dead already. It's certainly dying on its way out. And many parts of the world now are beginning to rethink the speed with which they can get out of coal rather than continue to invest further in coal. And once the investors and the insurance companies that invest, that have to provide the backing for these new investments, once they decide that there isn't 
any chance at all of 20, 30 years' worth of steady revenue coming from those investments. They won't go there. And I believe that's going to happen with new oil and gas um, investment propositions very, very quickly. It's going to get harder and harder to raise capital. In fact, that's already happening um, for the independent oil companies. And we'll be left with a rather weird world, man, and this gets difficult, where the independent oil companies, the ones that we have come to know and and increasingly to feel so angry about, the Exxon Mobiles and the Shell, BP, Texaco, all that lot, will pretty much quit the scene and we'll be left with all the national oil companies in places like Russia and the Middle East and, and so on, and who are not bound by the same investor mandates. And that worries me because it doesn't mean to say that oil and gas production will cease, but it means that the balance of power in the industry will shift. Fossil fuel subsidies uh, are just—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's incomprehensible that that they are still that they're still going on. Uh, and and one of the constant themes throughout your book is is the is is the economy, the wealth gap. Uh, I, I'd like to read something actually directly from your book, if you give me a moment here. <coughs> Excuse me. As with every other aspect of today's global economy, this is also a story of grotesque inequality. Oxfam regularly reminds us that the richest 10% of people in the world today are responsible for at least 50% of consumption-related greenhouse gas emissions. The poorest 50% of people today account for just 10% of consumption-related emissions. Beyond that, we already have ample evidence that the climate emergency acts as an amplifier of social inequality, disproportionately affecting the poorest and most vulnerable in society. Simply impossible to imagine humankind successfully navigating the decades of radical decarbonization ahead of us without addressing the deep structural inequalities that blight the lives of so many billions of people today. Yeah. It's a staggering situation we've ended up in. Um, and it goes to the heart of this particular version of capitalism that we are still reliant on, Van. That's the story. I'm not a, I'm not a anti-capitalist. I don't, I don't believe there's a solution which depends on, quotes, getting rid of capitalism, quotes. I don't, we haven't got time to do that anyway. So we can only do what we need to do through a dramatically transformed version of capitalism and the reason for that is that this particular version which let's let's sort of shorthand this because we haven't got much time left but 80s 90s in the last century we began to see the ascendancy of what's been referred to as neoliberal capitalism where markets essentially rule the roost and governments uh, pull back from regulation small state politics all of that and the assumption is that let people get as rich as they can get because enough of their wealth will trickle down to keep society stable and resilient. Well, of course, that has not happened. Wealth has trickled up throughout the last 50 years to the point where we've now ended up with this insanely unequal world. So for me, the big challenge, which has to be faced in parallel to the climate and the decarbonization challenge, is what do we do to 
address these grotesque inequalities, to put back some of the basic fairness in society. And I have to say, when I listen to your the, the Democrats now talking about this, and I listen to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and others, including more radical uh, people in the in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and so on, there is a recognition that we've got to undo the damage, some of the damage done by unrestrained breakneck neoliberal capitalism. And oddly enough, as we do that, I think it'll help build a low carbon, a kind of low carbon prosperity, which people will begin to celebrate rather than see as a threat to their future well-being. Uh, what, what do you think? I, I, am, I am highly anticipating and extremely fearful about this November COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Uh, and recently, you know, there's been there, – I wonder what you think about uh, some of this talk that, that – you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about we, we need to postpone this because the smaller countries are going to have trouble getting there or something. Isn't that just a red herring, trying to postpone it? I think it is, personally, Yeah. I can't see any point in postponing it now. I think the rich world countries need to step up and make it possible for smaller, poorer countries to be there um, to support them in whatever we need by way of vaccination and quarantine arrangements, let alone actually subsidizing some of their delegations. We've got to do this. We can't defer this conference any longer. I mean, it's, uh, people will find this astonishing, Dan, but one of the first things this conference is going to have to do in a few weeks' time is to agree on what is called the rule book from the Paris conference six years ago. You know, we haven't actually, although people talk about the success of Paris, the world leaders have not managed to sort out the rule book to implement the Paris agreement. If we go on deferring this forever and ever, then that point that we touched on earlier in our conversation, Van, the point where it does become too late, that, that moment just bears down on us faster and faster. Well, I promised I'd get you out of here in an hour. So as we wrap this up, though, Jonathan, we need to know what we should do now. What advice can you give the listeners who are listening because they give a damn? But what can they do? How do we become involved with this necessary last gasp civil disobedience? I think that I think there's so much that we can do, Van. I really do, and I don't want to underestimate the what are sometimes disparagingly called the lifestyle changes. It matters that we think about our diet and the way we travel and how we heat and light our homes. Those things all matter. But the nub of it, I've got to be honest about this, comes down to political action. It comes down to each citizen deciding for herself or himself that this is the moment where they have to be politically engaged in this. Um, democracy in your country, Van, is at risk as never before. And I've been following the politics of that really closely, obviously, for the last, well, for a long time, but particularly since the presidential election in November last year. And it seems to me incumbent now on everybody that, this, that we're all going to have to ramp up, whatever country you live in, we're going to have to ramp up our, our level of political activism because if we lose democracy, then you can pretty much forget anything to do with a a, a form of low-carbon prosperity for humankind. Yeah. It just won't happen. Yeah. 
So we have to dig in. We have to remind ourselves we're not just consumers, we're citizens in everything that we do. And we need to articulate that in all sorts of different ways, whether it's through our local communities, whether it's through our faith communities, which I think can be hugely influential places where people work together to encourage hope and real improvements in people's lives. There are so many things we can do practically to make this happen. Jonathan, I really appreciate you sharing this magnificent book. It's a vital contribution to all of our futures. Thank you. Brian, it's been great to talk. Thank you very much indeed. All right, sir. Jonathan Porritt's book is Hope in Hell, How We Can Confront the Climate Crisis and Save the Earth. You need to pick it up and share it. It's replete with source material, and some of the quotes he uses from others are stunning in their relevance. Hope in Hell by Jonathan Porritt. As I mentioned earlier, I've now done an even dozen of these interviews. Three of them were with fiction authors, all of them the most relevant authors on the planet right now because they all deal with the most relevant issue on the planet, our climate emergency. I embarked on this project in order to inform and educate you, the listener, so that you can hopefully figure out where you need to go from here. I've had no sponsor, done all this on my own nickel. I would like to thank Lawrence Knorr, the publisher of Sunbury Press, for providing this platform for me to present these interviews. I'm taking a hiatus now until after the COP26 conference in Glasgow in November. That meeting of the world's nations will be the most consequential meeting in human history. I'm extremely hopeful that I may be able to resume these interviews after that with the refreshed moniker of Recovery Earth. I remain hopeful. In the meantime, remember what we learned here today. The only thing that will save us now is civil disobedience. It's got to be nonviolent, but it's got to be. If all you've been doing is listening, it's time to get involved. You can do something. For the Earth, I'm Van Carter.